Well, open your Bible to Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. Acts 11, 19 through 30. And if you don't have a Bible, but you would like to use one that the church has provided right there in the back of the pew in front of you, you'll find shorter dark brown hardback book there. And this will be on either page 780 or 820 of the Pew Bible, depending on which printing of that you have. And we're going to dive in pretty quickly right to the text where we're continuing our series called Beyond. It is a study through the book of Acts, and I've titled it Beyond because we're interested in um, noticing in particular how the first century church lived beyond Sunday, beyond the walls, and beyond the borders. And all of those are on display in the church at Antioch that we study about in Acts 11, 19 through 30. And so let's look there together now. And I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version, beginning in verse 19. Hear the word of the Lord. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we thank you, as always, for the privilege of opening, opening your word, and we do so with the expectation that we're going to hear from you in it. You know how desperately we need on this earth to hear your voice spoken, and so we ask that you would speak, O oh Lord, your word by your spirit, through your servant, to your people for your glory. Lord, would you move me out of the way this morning and use my mouth as an instrument by which you can communicate to us. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. The book of Acts is outlined in such a way that chapters one through seven focus on Jerusalem and the church there and the apostles, especially Peter. And then chapters 13 through 28 focus on Paul and his ministry throughout the uttermost parts of the world. And in between, 
Chapters 8 through 12 provide a transition of sorts from one to the other. And that transition is provided through a series of of kind of quick snapshots of different scenes featuring different characters. So you'll recall that in chapter 8, the believers were scattered out of Jerusalem after a persecution that arose following the uh, death of Stephen. And they went... Um, to Samaria, and, and uh, we saw kind of a snapshot of Philip's preaching in Samaria. And then in chapter 9, the scene whips back over to Saul, one of the chief persecutors of the church that had driven him out in the first place. And we see on his journey to Damascus to actually persecute more Christians, Jesus meets him there and just in a remarkable, dramatic way, converts him. And he immediately begins preaching in the synagogues, preaching Jesus. Then chapter 10 flashes over to Peter and his visit to the home of Cornelius as the gospel went to the Gentiles for the first time, which Peter then reports to the church in Jerusalem in the first 18 verses of chapter 11. So that's how things have unfolded up to the point of the passage we read about here. And so now in the second half of chapter 11, we get another scene change, a flash over to Antioch. And I would suggest that in this overall transition that Luke is making in his narrative, this passage serves two overarching purposes. One is just to further explain how Paul becomes such a prominent figure in the church. He's writing to people who know who Paul is. He's, he's basically a famous Christian, you know. By that point, he's preached all over the world. And how did that come to be part of what This passage serves to do is to show how he went from persecutor to Christian, then to prominent leader. And then secondly, this passage helps explain how Antioch became such a prominent center of Christian activity. Antioch was actually the third largest city in the Roman Empire behind Rome and Alexandria, which is in Egypt. And it became a really prominent center of Christian activity. Jerusalem remained the command headquarters, if you will. So the apostles remained in Jerusalem and the churches elsewhere looked to Jerusalem for direction and authority and so forth. But Antioch became another major hub of Christian activity as the gospel spread internationally and the church there was healthy and vital in ways that were similar to Jerusalem. And that's part of, I think, the point Luke intends to make, is that the the same kinds of things that made the Jerusalem church healthy and vital were present in Antioch as well. And so in this description of the church at Antioch, we see what I've titled the profile of a thriving church. And so I want to highlight this morning four characteristics in that profile. Number one, that a thriving church has God's hand with them. Number two, that a thriving church stays on mission. Uh, Number three, that a church, a thriving church prioritizes the welfare of others. And number four, that a thriving church is well taught. And so let's look first at the fact that a thriving church has God's hand with them. And verse 21, if you'll notice, says exactly that. It says, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Now, that would be easy enough to miss or just gloss over. 
But the fact is, if it said they were speaking the word to Greeks and preaching about Jesus, but the hand of the Lord was not with them, then all the rest would be irrelevant. In fact, there probably wouldn't be much else to say, uh, honestly. People come to faith in Christ and the church grows because it is a work of Almighty God. And, and because Luke has written this entire account of the book of Acts, we have the benefit of knowing that he's doing something bigger. That in other words, Antioch is not just about Antioch. He's setting up something much larger in many other, to happen in many other places in the world. You'll remember that at the time of Saul's conversion, God had told him he was a chosen instrument of his to carry his name before the Gentiles. He had said that was going to happen. And now God's hand is at work in Antioch even to bring that to pass. Now, of course, these people couldn't see that master plan the way God saw it, right? And isn't that always the story for you and me? We can't see what God sees. We're down at ground level. As a matter of fact, probably to the church in Antioch, it didn't look like a plan at all. Anybody's plan. It looked like chaos. Because consider the fact, I mean, they are essentially living out a refugee crisis. I mean, you may have seen on the news even, uh, I think this morning, that uh, Europe finally decided who is going to receive the latest refugees coming from the continent of Africa. Because there's been such, so many and such a crisis. What do we do with them all? Where do we make home for them all? That's essentially what's going on here. There's a refugee crisis because thousands and thousands of people had been displaced from their homes by a life-threatening religious persecution. And they're looking for a place to settle. But as they went and, and preached, God was bringing people to repentance and faith because his hand was with them. And, and, and this is worth highlighting because it can't be manufactured or negotiated. The hand of God on a church, on a, on a movement, on an individual, it can't be manufactured and it can't be negotiated somehow. There's no system or strategy that substitutes for that. And yet what Gamaliel said to the council in Acts chapter 5 remains true for us. You may remember but essentially the message was that if any endeavor we undertake is of man, it will fail. And if it is of God, no one can stop it. And so for a church that desires to be a thriving church, if a church is to be a thriving church, the hand of God must be with them. Second, we see that a thriving church stays on mission. Let's look at verse 19. To begin with, it says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. I'll pause right there to say a couple of things. Number one, Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch are, are regions just farther north uh, from where they had already gone. So they had been spread out of Jerusalem, up through Judea and Samaria. Uh, you remember Saul's conversion happened 
right outside of Damascus, which is even further north. And Phoenicia is a coastal region, uh, much of which is, which is in modern-day Lebanon, um, if you know where that is. And if not, then none of this really means anything anyway, does it? Uh, but coastal region farther north, Cyprus, an, an island offshore from there, and Antioch uh, just further north. That is, we're getting farther and farther out of uh, Jewish territory per se and, and, and further into the Greco-Roman world. So it says those from Jerusalem, those who were scattered because of the persecution of Stephen, were most inclined to speak to Jews in every place that they went. It said initially they were speaking to Jews only. And that's primarily because they thought of this as a Jewish message. At this point, they didn't understand the gospel had anything to do with Gentiles. Remember, Peter's visit to Cornelius and that conversion of him and his household, that was the, the gospel making its way into the Gentile world. That news hadn't reached these folks yet. As far as they knew, that had nothing to do with Gentiles. But it also seems likely that these Jerusalem Jews, as they gravitated toward, uh, or rather that they gravitated toward Jewish sub-communities, as they travel to these new cities. In other words, much, much the same way you and I would expect to do if we suddenly found ourselves refugees seeking uh, to settle or, or just seeking safety and peace in a foreign country, we'd look for other Americans. If we found some Southerners, we'd really snuggle up to them, wouldn't we? I mean, you know what I mean? That this is kind of the way it just works. And so that, that's part of what happens. You've got Jerusalem Jews gravitating toward Jerusalem communities, presumably. And, and that's probably a helpful way of understanding the contrast in verse 20. Look there. Because it says, but there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. When the believers from Cyprus and and, and Cyrene came to Antioch. They spoke to non-Jews as well. Now, you'll, you'll notice that the ESV, which I'm reading out of here, uses the word Hellenist. We've been introduced to the term Hellenist in reference to Greek-speaking Jews. You may recall that in uh, Acts 6. Greek-speaking Jews. The, the context here seems to suggest these are Greek-speaking non-Jews, right? Because it's it's set in contrast to Jews. It says the folks from Jerusalem spoke to Jews only. Those from Cyprus and Cyrene spoke also to the Hellenists, as it says here, or as if you don't have the ESV or the New King James, your translation probably says Greeks. Or if you have the King James, Grecians. But in other words, Gentiles. But the point, the point is this, that they engaged socially with people and whoever engaged with them, they told them about Jesus. That's really the point. That's, they just stayed on mission. Wherever they found themselves interacting, they stayed on mission. So much, in fact, that it's Antioch that sent Paul and others out on his missionary work. Antioch, this church that is just beginning to shape take shape. The hand of the Lord was upon them and a great number turned to the Lord. And in short order, they became the sending church. 
that turned the world upside down because they stayed on mission. And this, of course, is the, the crux of the matter I've kept coming back to through this series. One of the things we really want to notice as we study through the book of Acts is the church living on mission everywhere they live and everywhere they go. My desire, my, my vision for our church, if you will, is to see us embrace that mindset of being a church that stays on mission, that, that rather than thinking of ourselves as a gathered church that occasionally scatters, that we think rather of ourselves as a scattered church that gathers. And that's a bit of a, a, a paradigm shift. And, um, but the idea is that we think of ourselves as being on mission out in the world every day. And that weekly we gather together. And over time, other people gather with us. We're a scattered church. We live our lives most days of the week scattered. Um, but even that we do that in more intentional and more organized ways, perhaps. I should mention that the church is a gathered church, by the way. I mean, it is almost by definition an assembly. That is what the church is. I'm not suggesting that we undo that somehow, but rather that there just be a shift in our thinking that we begin to see ourselves as a scattered church so that we're on mission all the time, that our eyes are lifted, that we're always looking and listening to know what God is setting before us all the time. What is he already doing that we can participate in? And so my vision for us is to walk that out in three ways. Now the first is in missional communities. And I've mentioned this a few times and I'll have to continue looking for opportunities to define it. But the idea is uh, with missional communities that you've got little groups of, well, really there are larger groups than what we think of as small groups, but 20 to 40 people who just share a passion to reach a certain group of people, um, some subpopulation of your community. I would say the, UNC, the, the work at UNCW is not quite a, a missional community, hasn't taken shape as that per se, but it's sort of the first fruits of that, that you have a group of people within our congregation beginning to just find ways to go be among people outside the church. They picked the UNCW community. In, in fact, some of them narrowed that focus to internationals in the UNCW community. But they share a passion there. They find ways to, to live and interact among them and just begin over time to develop relationships um, through which, hopefully by the providence of God, there are gospel opportunities and people will come to faith in Christ. And that could be multiplied many times over in many different ways. But, but the idea is that you create a structure as a church to point people to, to say, we want everybody, we want every single person living on mission. And here's a way that you can do it. You know, when we exit the door, to the mission field, we can say, well, you can go out this door to UNCW. You can go out another door, minister to the downtown community, maybe through street angels or something else or other ways like that, but that we create missional communities 
and begin to live on mission with people in that way. Second is planting churches. That we stay on mission by, like Antioch, becoming a sending church. Now this is uh, perhaps unfathomable to many of us, most of us right now. I mean, we'll think of us as, as being in the position to even talk or thinking about, think about planting churches. But I would say a thriving church is a sending church. A thriving church is a sending church. And that part of the vision we develop and part of the goals we begin to set is, is how, as God leads, when God leads and where God leads, we send people out to start other churches in other places. Because there is something very um, just right and kingdom about giving rather than taking. That if you, if you, if you send, if you give away something of, um, of what God has given you, even people who are part of your congregation, that he'll multiply that back to you many times over. But that's part of my vision is that become part of our vision at the appropriate time and in the appropriate way that we see ourselves not only as a church that has missional communities of our own congregation living on mission locally, but that we also cast a vision for planting churches. And third, that we continue sending and supporting international missionaries. We have, this has always been part of the passion and the DNA of our congregation. We've had the privilege of hearing from missionaries over the course of this year, even a couple of weeks ago, from Elliot Tepper, who was sent out from here and started Battelle International. And now it's ministering in a hundred cities in 24 nations around the world. Countless lives have been impacted by a work birthed out of this congregation. Praise the Lord for that. And I, and I pray that we'll continue not only supporting those like that that we've sent, but that we'll have others God calls out of this congregation that we send other places, that we just embrace the mindset of being a church that sends and multiplies. And I'll say uh, that even to this point, you know, we have a, around 300 or so people gathering here weekly right now. And if we had five or 600 um, a few years from now, we'll make room for five or 600. But the, but the truth is this, this is my heart anyway. That if, if a commitment to being a sending church meant that 20 years from now, we still have 300 people here because we've continued to send so many out and, and there are 30,000 gathering elsewhere in New Hanover County and North Carolina and all over America and across the world. I'll take that. I mean, that's, not a, that, that's a good deal. I don't believe that'll happen, frankly. I really don't. I believe a church, I believe a church that embraces the mindset and then puts feet behind it to be a sending church, to multiply, to bless, um, that it will grow faster than they can send. Because that is part of the making of a thriving church. Well, I need to move on. Number three, a thriving church prioritizes the welfare of others. We see this demonstrated in two ways in this passage. And first is 
in the way Barnabas seeks out Saul. If you look in verses 22 through 24, um, it says that the report of this, that is what's happening in Antioch, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose for he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith and a great many people were added to the Lord. Now, Barnabas was sent down from headquarters, if you will, right? He's the guy that came down from corporate to check things out and see what's going on here as the report came back of what's happening in Antioch. You may remember Barnabas is a native of Cyprus. So these are some of his people, if you will, um, beginning to take root in the church in Antioch. It's not far from Cyprus. This is kind of his neighborhood. Maybe he's a natural choice to go check on him there. But Barnabas is also perhaps a choice because he's known as an encourager. His, his real name is Joseph, you may remember. Barnabas is a nickname, which, he's, which means son of encouragement. And he got that name because he's just such an encourager. So they send him in to check on things. But he's also the guy, you remember, as an encourager, he's the guy that put his arm around Saul and welcome, welcomed him as a believer. Do you remember that? Saul, the guy who had been persecuting Christians, dragging them off to jail, even seeing them be killed for their faith. He, he gets converted, and there are people going, I don't know about that guy. And Barnabas puts his arm around him and says, he's the real deal. He is that guy, and so what does he do? Well, he goes off to Tarsus, Look in verse 25. Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Now, what was he sent from Jerusalem to do? What a check on the church at Antioch. He sees what's going on. He leaves Antioch, makes a special trip to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. He believed in Saul. He knew God had done something real in his life. It was authentic. And he recognized the gifts and the calling that he had on his life. But I want you to consider the implications of this, why this is worth lingering on here as, as an as a example of a church that has a mindset of seeking the welfare of others. Barnabas, Barnabas would have come into Antioch with a little bit of clout simply by the fact that he's a leader from the Jerusalem church. And he goes to retrieve the man who will be elevated to a higher level of prominence. This passage ends with reference to Barnabas and Saul. Halfway through chapter 13 or so, the midpoint of their First missionary journey, the order's reversed. And it becomes Paul and Barnabas. And Barnabas will play second fiddle to Paul for the remainder of his ministry. But does so without hesitation. I mean, there's, there's no mention of that uh, 
in the text or, or, or from Barnabas. But it's part of the reality of what happens here. He's not jockeying for position, trying to hold on to something. He recognizes what God has done and intends to do in the life of Paul. And he goes and seeks him out to call him to the hour of ministry God's appointed for him. And you could even say on a human level, Barnabas is the reason Paul had the ministry he had. That on a human level, what ultimately would lead to the writing of almost half of the New Testament that came out of the ministry of Paul begins with the selfless act of a humble, obedient man of God who goes to look for him and call him to the place of ministry God has for him. And that's remarkable. Of course, God was intending to do that anyway. He, he had already said Paul would be that kind of, or Saul would be that sort of instrument for him. But the means he used was this act on the part of Barnabas. Well, in addition to that, we also see the church prioritizing the welfare of others in the collection they take up for the believers in Judea. And I'm just going to hit this very quickly, but you notice there in the last four verses from 27 through 30, it says that some prophets came down and told Agabus, told them there was going to be a famine in the land. Um, and it happened in the reign of Claudius. Okay, throughout the whole world, there's going to be a famine. And so they take up a collection and send it to the brothers in Judea, it says. Now, they weren't told to do that. The word from God was simply that there was going to be a famine and they had to use some discernment and make a decision about what to do, how to respond to that. And they responded by taking up a collection and sending it elsewhere. Now, this is actually quite remarkable and I don't know if it strikes you as such, but let me see if I can strike you. Okay. Because... Well, think about even, perhaps when you think of famine in the Bible, the first thing that comes to my mind is Joseph in Egypt. Maybe it does for you. Maybe another one comes to mind. And what was the right response then? Even the one essentially God revealed to Joseph. Well, it's store up grain, right, during years of plenty, so that then during the years of famine, you can carefully manage the distribution of that to your own people. That's a very natural response, isn't it? I mean, this is kind of the, this is the way you and I react. In fact, you know, you hear ads on the radio and that sort of thing, buy gold. You know, the economy's gonna collapse. The world's going to hell in a handbasket. You know, buy gold, store up rice and beans or whatever. But the, but the point is really to say that, that it, 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 it touches something that's just a, a natural, this is the way we would almost expect if we heard there was going to be famine, we would prepare to take care of ourselves in the course of that famine. There is no reason the church of Antioch thinks Judea is going to have it worse off than they. It says the famine is going to be throughout the world. But they do know that the believers in Judea are already experiencing more hardship than they are because of the persecution going on there. And the love of Christ runs so deeply in them that they just responded to the word of God by seeking the welfare of others. And that's true of a thriving church. 
that part of just the, the, the heartbeat, the impulse of a thriving church is to seek the welfare of others, not to seek its own self-preservation. Number four, a thriving church receives sound teaching. And I will uh, touch this just briefly, but it deserves mention. Verse 26 says that Barnabas brought Saul back to Antioch and for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. Now let's think about the resume of this teacher. This is Saul, who is also called Paul, the man who wrote the book of Romans. Have you read it? It's pretty dense, isn't it? Even Ephesians and Colossians, shorter letters, they're, they're rich and weighty. And, the, and these are, and, and his other letters are written to churches that he had spent time teaching. In other words, that, that what we read about in, in, in his letters, what he wrote, reveals something to us about what he taught when he was present with them. Okay, this is not a Sunday school class on how to get along better with your coworkers. Okay, this is meaty stuff that runs deep and he taught them for a whole year. Actually, they got off pretty good. He, was, he did the same thing in Ephesus for about three years daily. But sound teaching is an essential characteristic for a thriving church. I mention it, number one, because the text mentions it, but number two, because it's falling a little bit out of style if you will, in the church today. That somehow it's sort of a take it or leave it um, proposition and, um, and the sort of um, study that, that people are more inclined to engage in is maybe a little uh, looser and, uh, and haphazard. But, you know, making, making disciples cannot simply consist of people um, kind of hanging out together, spending time together and sharing what God is doing in your life this week. And I'm not making light of that sort of thing. That's valuable to be able to share how God is really working, that he's showing himself to be real. He's my God. Let me tell you about that in my own life. But discipleship, making disciples can't consist of that sort of exchange alone. There has to be teaching grounded in the truth of God's word. And a thriving church depends on that. And so we believe here that there is a bright future for this church, for Myrtle Grove Evangelical Presbyterian Church right here at 800 Piner Road, that he is going to do great things in the future through this church, out of this church. That generations, future generations, will be blessed and will be a blessing, and the nations will be blessed. The nations will be blessed because of what God is going to do in this church, and I believe that. I believe that's the heart of God for a thriving church, is to bless in order to be a blessing. And so, our prayer is that God will make us a thriving church, that his hand will be with us 
as we stay on mission, as we make it a priority to seek the welfare of others, and as we take care to ensure that we are providing and receiving sound teaching in the word of God, and that's a church God will bless. Let's pray together. Father, we, we do thank you for the inspiration and challenge that your word always provides to us, but especially this word here about the church at Antioch. Lord, one of the themes we have seen in the book of Acts is when you determine to move among people, there is absolutely nothing that can hinder or stop you from doing so. And that was true there, and we pray that it will be true here. Father, would you move us out of a place of simply wishing it would be true, hoping it will be true, remembering when it was true. Move us out of a place of, of sitting and wishing into a place where we individually and collectively are on mission, blessing others and teaching our people well. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.